Welcome to UX Banter Podcast Season 2. I am your host Dushyant Kanungo. Here, I speak with industry leaders about their journey in design and know more about what inspires them to become the best in the industry. This podcast is presented by Galaxy UX Studio and powered by Galaxy Weblinks, an Inc 5000 organization. Hello, welcome to a new episode of UX Banter Podcast Season 2. Our guest this week is an archetypical designer who leads a UX practice, excels in digital design solutions for data-driven enterprises. With all these professional abilities, she is also a doting mother whose work-life balance is on point. She has also worked with retail and lifestyle startups and made a mark of her own. An expert graphic visual designer, she is deft in client management and data science. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you all to the product design leader at Tam. Jessica Robinson. Welcome to the show Jessica. Hi, thank you for having me. That was such a nice introduction too. <laughs> It's always hard to hear, you know, your bio, but that thank you. I'm glad that you like it. So, but that's well deserved actually. So, there has been long journey. You started as a graphic designer. That is you got your education in graphic design and now you are leading your passion becomes the design leadership. and that too for enterprise level applications and all that how that journey has you know took place i mean when you realized that you wanted to be a designer and then when you know when you switch from one domain to another how does that come to be sure great um so i i think i always knew i wanted to do something design related um even as a kid you know i remember having a typesetting kit when i was in preschool and now as a mother i know like this sounds like such a nightmare to give a kid but it was literally like all of the uppercase and lowercase letters and ink pads and i would just sit there and make books all day and so i think the writing was on the wall at a really young age um and i always enjoyed science and art and those were kind of my two favorite things and um my father always encouraged me to go into science and my mother always encouraged me to go into art um and so hopefully i made them happy by kind of doing a combination of both but um i knew i wanted to pursue art and fine art um for an undergrad because i couldn't imagine being um passionate and driven about getting you know all my gen eds done i just i i saw what doing a traditional non-art degree looked like and i was like you know i think i think i'm going to struggle with that because i just don't think my interest is there and um so i chose to go to a design school in new york city and i loved it I, um it was a ton of work but it was well worth it i think i i lived on like 3 or 4 hours of sleep for a few years but um learned a lot met a lot of great people and was exposed to a ton that I did not have in the little suburb that I grew up in Rhode Island so really thankful for that um and then when I was in school so this was um in the early 2000s and there wasn't a lot of you know at that point I thought maybe I would be a web designer right like that was sort of the only um digital thing that was out there for graphic designers and um I remember playing with Dreamweaver and being like eh it's kind of okay and being really into motion um but not wanting to be in animation but really interested in sort of like the um the fluidity of it and the dynamic piece of it um and pretty early on I realized that that was that was the domain I wanted to be in and um I graduated got a job doing um kind of graphic design production I would say I was resizing assets I was helping art directors take 
um, photos from the studio and figure out what they would look like as banner ads and things like that for, for the website that I was working for. And um, at one point, and I we used to make these like digital lookbooks, which I found really interesting because that, that there was some um, dynamic and there was some dynamicism and good design that could be had. And then uh, for, for efficiency reasons, the, um, the employer decided, you know, like, we're not going to make these anymore. I think that they're they're taking up a ton of time, and we can better tell the brand story other ways. And so then my job became really just a lot of resizing assets. And I wrote a script to do all of my work, <laughs> a really early Photoshop script um, to resize the assets. And I would just kind of go in and hand um, hand fix whatever didn't look great. And then I put the script on other people's computers and I went up to my creative director after you know like a day or two of running the script and I said you know I most of my work can be done in in a few hours um I would love if there was something else I could do to help out the team and at that point we had one UX designer for the entire mm -hmm. company and I would have lunch with her and I always found her really interesting and I loved how she had like a technical um job but also got to be creative and I asked if I could shadow her um, she was a bit more senior than me and she was happy to have me shadow her. She had a lot of work on her plate. And so I actually started because there was no such thing as Zeppelin and there was no such thing as inspect. Um, so I started, um, redlining her designs to give to development and working between her and the developer to see like, you know, what assets needed to be cut and if there was any intermediate screens and things like that. And so um, slowly over time, what went from like shadowing when I finished my work to, you know, I transitioned over to her team and then um, the team had grown a little bit and she ended up leaving and, um, you know, I was part of the what we called the digital team at that time and um, built out sort of what the first UX team at, at Rulala was. So that was... That was sort way, of how was, I transitioned in. Very interesting point that you just made uh, was like, finding out the missing or intermediate screen. That is, you know, when you go from one screen to another, identifying the flow has a breakdown somewhere in the middle. I think that is one of the key characteristics that make a good UX designer, don't you think? That, you know, understanding the flow is smooth and what which are the areas that nobody actually thought could happen and just, you know, figuring that, that thing out. And I think that is, you know, setting up the first few stones that if you can identify that, you can definitely become a UX designer. Yeah, I think finding the edge cases, which I have to say developers are usually way better at it. <laughs> uh, finding the edge cases and figuring out like, hey, what if I'm coming from this part of the site? What if I want to press the back button? What if, uh, you know, what if this doesn't work? Um, understanding that and asking all those questions when you're going in and designing is what's gonna make your life easier and your developer's life easier and obviously your user's life easier because if you can anticipate where they're coming from, what they need, and what kind of visual cues they might need. Um, that's really kind of where the sweet spot of UX is, right? Like that's what makes a good UX designer. So your transition has been um, multifold. So you came from a graphic design background uh, and then you moved into startups and then you went to do work for enterprises. The difference is, you know, very stark, like chalk and cheese, there is no way you can actually compare that what sort of output was uh, coming from these different experiences. So which parts of this, you know, when you decided to move from one domain to another, which domain do you really think actually gave you the most satisfaction creativity wise? 
It's a great question. So I think figuring out when a UX pattern that exists isn't going to work for what you need to do. Hmm. Um, it doesn't happen as much in non-enterprise design, right? Because like there's a cart, there's a gallery page, there's, you know, those are all things that there's a little bit of uh, room for improvement, but not much like those. But with enterprise design, oftentimes you're, you're figuring out a task that's like very unique to your particular product, or mm. maybe it is a task, but your audience is very unique. Um, and so that's sort of where my, I think my transition was really actually pretty slow because I started in e-commerce uh, at Rula Law, and then I went to Vistaprint. And Vistaprint's funny because it's sort of, it is, it is consumer facing, but they consider themselves um, enterprise because they're working with small businesses. Um, and I worked on the studio application, which was sort of like their, how, how users would take their designs and get them to print, right? And that was sort of my first toe in the water at true application design. And I loved it, right? It was, it was super interesting. And I felt like I was, it was interesting to be both the user, the user and have a lot of expertise in like how things should be used because, or how things should be, because, you know, I knew Photoshop and I knew Sketch and I knew Illustrator and all these things, but like our users don't, that's why they're at Vistaprint. And um, so figuring out like, what are the tools that they're used to and, and um, how they could still get that job done was sort of where I was like, oh, this is really, you know, this is a much different problem than figuring out how to get people to buy something, right? Sure. It's really, um, it's very different. So that, that's the other thing is like the motivation of um, clicking the button or conversion. Like once you take that away from design and you're just more about getting the task done than the conversion rate, um, I found that really interesting and, and different. And then after Vistaprint, I went to um, Philips, which is now Signify and worked on lighting applications, which was similar to studio, right? Like it was, there was some visual aspect to it. And, you know, I understood like what things needed, to, what a timeline application would look like and things like that. But the difference was instead of having every small business owner as my user, I had like a handful of like the 50 best lighting designers in the world using the application. And so I couldn't A-B test, right? Like with, with a large consumer website, you can turn an A-B test on for an hour on a Tuesday and get enough information to understand things. But when you have 50 users total using your product because it's controlling, you know, million dollar lighting installations that not that many people have access to control, um, you have to be really smart and scrappy about how you figure out what your task flows are and what, what the, you know, what people need. So I thought that was, I thought it was interesting. And just like, I've, I've always liked problem solving and kind of the harder the problem and the meatier the subject domain, the more interesting it is to me. Basically answered the one question that was about to ask later on that was <laughs> the biggest brand that we can actually find. Um, that you know, one of the biggest brands in in in, in your uh, profile, which is listed on LinkedIn. Um, so, Vista Print, I was about to ask, like, how was it? I would say it was Philips, right? Like they invented light. <laughs> yeah, but Philips is now so renamed in that that particular domain. So that is why there was a bit of a confusion. But I was to ask Vista Print because 
a lot of people, I mean, we don't use Philips applications. We say that we go on and buy a product by Philips, but we never use Philips software. As you rightfully mentioned that about 50 people use your application there. But when I say Vista Print, I think all the design community people know about it. It's a well-known brand in all parts of the world. You can, you know, you say Vista Print and people would identify with it uh, instantly. I mean, if anybody who has ever touched a computer to design something, they will know that there is a website that you can actually get um, things directly. So obviously, if that has happened, then there must be a time when I use the solution designed by you. And yeah, so <laughs> it has been. Um, I don't know if I, I should apologize or. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It was it, it is an intuitive website and application. I mean, whichever part you actually go to. And it allows us to actually customize things that we never thought possible. I mean, this is one of those first instances where a application where you develop something you quickly order and they actually deliver within time with reasonable rates and all that. So I think Vistaprint got the um, customization part on point. And I think it's it's something which a lot of startups do miss out on that how best you can customize, how quick you can actually deliver. Local printing is, I think, uh, their biggest advantage that they are printing in India and UK and US and wherever you are. All over and the world. Yeah. And their secret the sauce really is, yeah, their secret sauce is the fact that that studio application directly interfaces with manufacturing. Like True. there's no, yeah, it, I always found that like the wild that like what you designed on screen went straight to the embroiderer, straight to the the press. Like that was, uh, you know, there was, which made it really interesting to design for because technically there was, you know, there was a lot of funky things that we had to work around. But um, yeah, I mean, the technology behind what Vistaprint's doing is really interesting. Nice to hear that. I mean, this see, these are the things that we don't get. This is the scoop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the business at Vistaprint actually works. Okay, with that, I'm going to come to our round of uh, rapid fire questions. The infamous one. Uh, some people love it. Some people just hate it. And this, uh, you might have gone through our previous season, but this season we have changed the questions. So you, you know, can't prepare for them beforehand. And that is, I think, the beauty of it, that we record all the episodes first before releasing them. So you have no idea that what I'm going to ask. So I'm going okay. to shuffle the deck. So even I don't know which question <laughs> is coming first. Okay. So question number one, your last Google search. That would be Fahrenheit to Celsius when uh, before the podcast when we were talking about how hot it is in Boston now. <laughs> okay, uh, next one. Fast food or fine dining? Oh gosh, so this is a tricky question, right? So if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have said fine dining. Um, but I got COVID last week and my taste buds are gone. Um, so I would say, and I had a Wendy's cheeseburger that I could actually taste part of. So I'm going to stick with fast food until I can actually taste things. Spicy? Spicy. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> of course. All right. So your least favorite subject in school or college? Um, in undergrad, let's see. Um, I think that's a tough one. You know, I think it's funny because the one that if you asked me in undergrad, I probably would have said art history, but I love it now. I think the <laughs> fact that I had to memorize all of those note cards, which people probably don't do anymore, but I, you know, having to memorize all the dates and everything, that was always um, not my favorite part. <laughs> but now I love it. And I'm so thankful that I went through that education process. 
so if if i agree with remembering all those dates i'd say i hated history in high school so <laughs> right but, but now, i love it now yeah. yeah now it's you know you do understand those things are really interesting but if you tell that to a 15 year old they like what are you talking about and why do i have to memorize all those yeah, why does it matter right now you go through and current events everything like it's so important to understand history um and then for i would say calculus was the other one that was i was really good at math until i got to calculus and then calculus i sort of um knew i was going to art school and i didn't do great <laughs> i'll just put it that way <laughs> okay books or movies movies which one is your favorite then um so my favorite movie that's a good question i think it changes all the time we've been watching a lot of 90s movies because we've been home with the kids on quarantine we just watched rookie of the year and that is and sandlot um and so i think all those like 90s nostalgia movies from my childhood i really i'm really enjoying but i also love david guest movies when the kids aren't around Mm. <laughs> I just had a marathon of John Hughes movies if you believe that. I mean Oh, so. <laughs> that's a good one too. Yeah. So he's all the pretty and pink and then uh, the you know Ferris Bueller's Day Off and uh, 16 Candles. I don't know what happened. I mean just didn't one after another it was just playing on the routine so one weekend was completely just gone in a flash like that. That's so. amazing. Those are all great movies too. I remember being really obsessed with them when I was in high school. I was a little like they were older when I was in high school, but those are the things that were on when like you were home from school at sick. Like that's what, you know, Pretty in Pink would come on and um I loved that. Molly Ringwald is just yeah. And yeah, Breakfast and, Club. Yeah, that did. Breakfast Club is one of my favorite films. um in that collection as well. I think it, it was a different time for the, those movies. I mean, they can't just make them now. Um so your guilty pleasure Instagram Okay Instagram is my guilty pleasure. I love it. I just I like I lose so much time at night after I put the kids to bed. I just I go on Instagram. Um I think that's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> so if you can move anywhere on earth, where would you go? Vancouver, Canada. Even colder. Yeah, but it's milder. <laughs> and they're skiing and there's the water and it's a clean modern city and there's really good food um so yeah no i i'm going to stick with vancouver i i like the cold so i'm good with that plus it's better skiing over there is in the northeast okay uh go out or staying in stay in all right and the last question is if you won 10 million dollars tomorrow what would be the first thing that you're going to buy That is a great question. Um and I thought about this. This is like one of my favorite things to think about, right? So first of all, <laughs> I would invest it all. 100% of it would go in something and I would only use the interest. So I know that. I think I would buy a beach house in Rhode Island. Not in Vancouver. Be, no, I would I would travel back and forth. But the beach, I mean it's too the Pacific is too cold to swim in. I want something with like some warm water. So Okay. Yeah, in like Watch Hill. I think I would buy buy a house in Watch Hill. Mm, nice, but great minds think alike. I mean, I think the same that you put the money in investment and just live on the interest, and that would be you know sufficient for you to sustain. And yeah, that's that's a good amount of money to actually have at you know disposal to just survive and not live your life luxuriously. All right, with that, I'm. This is the end of the round. Thank you for okay. being so candid and uh, going with the all the answers that we questions that we asked you. All right. So, um 
the first question that actually I have to get back to on a serious note is that the journey, you just said that you hated calculus in school. And then mm -hmm. there was art history that you now love. And that was in graphic design that you actually studied in the design school in New York. That's bustling metropolis to, you know, be in art scene. That is, you know, something that gets to you. Uh, being in New York, I mean, I love that city. Every time I'm there, it's just, you know, more time I spent on the streets and uh, walking on the roads and in the middle of the night, that is uh, something that I really enjoy. But from there to... Uh, going into the enterprise zone of designing. So what sort of technical challenges that you think that designers could face? Because uh, you come from a background where mathematics was something, was not something that you enjoyed. Then parts came where um, it's all about data visualization, big data, and uh, okay. data science that comes into play. And you have to manage the two things together. So what sort of extra learnings were required and why, you know, what, what the challenges uh, have been so far for you and how did you overcome those? So I don't think you need to know as much as a data scientist about data science in order to design for them. I think it's actually better if you can distance yourself, you like understand enough to be able to design for them, but distance yourself slightly so that you can, um, you know, understand that when they ask for something, they're they're bringing up a problem and they may be giving you a solution but that might not be the solution you need, right? Like if you ask someone, they're gonna always want a faster horse, kind of goes back to that. So um, yeah, I think that with enterprise, it's, you know, you got you have to know your user, but you also have to know that maybe the way the user's doing something isn't, is, is because that was what was given to them. And that's not necessarily the best, the best way for them to do that. Um, so understanding that. And so with, you know, my last three positions, I was working with subject matter, you know, people, subject matter experts that had drastically different backgrounds than me, right? Like, so uh, data scientists right now, um, previously it was quality managers. And then before that it was lighting designers. And I don't have, you know, I've never worked a day in my life as any of those um, roles, but I needed to design for them. So understanding what their pain points are, understanding the tasks that they do, and then what tools they use both inside and outside of work is key. I think that's one of the things that I'm a big proponent of. Like whenever I'm working on a persona deck, I want to understand what the person does outside of work a little bit so I can understand what some of their motivations are, right? Like, is this persona most likely to have an Apple watch? And are they really interested in tracking statistics about their health? If that's the case, then maybe they also want to gamify something at work too. Um, and maybe they don't, maybe they're just a strictly like, you know, I think with quality management, it was like everything wants to be a table. And I think enterprise software in general, um, a table tends to check a lot of boxes. But yeah, understanding sort of what motivates those people and that they're, they're, those, those personas when they leave work are still, are still people and to understand how to kind of take that picture and, and build a good product for them. But that is now about the technical side of things. So you are designing, say, a very active dashboard where the data is, you know, running live and you are switching between interactions and the data representation is taking place. So do you have to go through a lot of libraries to see that which are working out for the for the purpose and what can work with the data? What are the technical feasibilities about the availability of data? Um, those things, do you think that that, that that forms a bigger challenge? So it's interesting, yeah. So I think that, sometimes the challenge is that we capture too much data, well, not that we capture too much data, but we show too much data, right? So I think, um, I went through this with Philips and they, cause 
previous to me coming on board for one of the products that I worked on, the developer was designing everything. And they were like, we're going to show everything that we capture. And then when I talked to users, they said, I don't, I don't care what my like top fixtures are. Like, that's not interesting to me. What I need to know is like when it's on, when it's off, how far down it went off, you know, these kind of things, what the weather was when it went off, what the, um, if there's anything else going on, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. And so it's sometimes it's about showing less and, and figuring out what's the most important and what we want to track. And then one thing I'm working on right now is like, what do we want to track statically and what do we want to track over time and what's it, which, which one of those KPIs are important. And so for me, I'm sort of a, I want the initial way someone interacts with data to be pretty basic and then allow them to dive deeper if they want, rather than showing everything all at once. <laughs> um, it creates sort of this like Tokyo yeah. or um, the, the analogy I use is like, if you go to Times Square and I asked mm. you to, to um, talk about five billboards you saw, you would not remember any of them because you saw way too many things. But if you were driving down the highway and there's not just one billboard at a time, then you're probably more likely to remember them. Um, so cognitive think... load is real. Managing cognitive load becomes the responsibility way heavier in enterprise. I mean, I, I completely uh, agree with that assessment because recently whenever we you know get to do a lot of enterprise work at, at our organization as well, and uh, one of the clients, they said that everything is on the screen, but these are the certain features which quite useful. We have spent quite a bit of money and uh, in the development and research, but people are not using them and we are not sure what's wrong with it. So can you help us, uh, you, know, you know, figure out that why it's not happening? So we did a user research from here. We spoke to their clients and said, this is the feature which should come in handy. You just said that this is what you require from the application. Why are you not using it? And the guy was like, oh, I couldn't locate it. I mean, it was right there, but I was unable to find it. So I think findability, is comes before usability, but the finding is more important before you can actually just put your effort to actually use. So the information architecture part, putting, making sure that the priority is sorted and the navigation is clear enough so that the user can actually go and discover. So putting everything at once, not going to work. You have to you know, acknowledge the context in which person would be using uh, that particular screen. Exactly, and I think like, you know, um... Photoshop's a good example. I always talk about like the modes, right? Like if I'm an animator, I get a set of tools. If I'm a, a photo retoucher, I get a set of tools. I still have the opportunity to use the tools that the animator does, but they're not as the hierarchy for them are is not the same. And so I think True. it's the same with enterprise products, right? Like if a um, someone who's an expert level user versus someone who is the customer who maybe just needs, you know, an overview or a manager who just really needs like the highest level um, overview of what's going on that, you know, making sure that you account for like what the dashboards would look like for each one of those is really important. It goes back to persona work. It always, it always goes back to persona work. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think you get more personas if you're doing, say, something for a startup or a B2C uh, product. But if, it are, if you're doing B2B or enterprise level solution, uh, it, they would come back to you and say, they are getting paid to use this application. We will train them and <laughs> we'll get these sorted. So that is where the buy-in becomes the biggest of the hurdle that, you know, they have to understand that, you know, even though the sub person is getting paid to do it, 
if they are taking too much time and working with that application, it is company time which is being wasted. So it has to be totally. hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a customer at one of my jobs that would calculate, like we would say here, you know, here's the new design and they would say, okay, there's a new click right here. And we calculate that's going to cost that, that single additional click is going to cost us $460,000 a year. <laughs> like and that was how, that was how thorough they were and um, how important it was to them that, you know, everything be efficient as possible. And that is where the magic of UX design comes to play, that they need to invest in research if they want to find the proper solution. Because I have noticed that these products, enterprise ones, they start off very small that we are sorting out very little problem and then just keep adding things on it. So it becomes a you know Godzilla that really hard to feed and maintain, whether you know, they just needed a simple software uh, that can actually, uh, they can just scrap it and start from the beginning, they'll get a better product in terms of speed and technology and bugs and all that. Um, so, okay, so let's keep the enterprise on the side for a minute and let's come yeah. back to you. Um, so you have, uh, you are a mother of two, uh, and I am, uh, yeah. beautiful children. And then, um, uh, how does it go that, you know, you balance your career, uh, with perfection and then you have to, uh, make sure that everybody is in place and they, they're very young, right? Yes. So they're four years old and seven years old. Um, so they are pretty young. They're not as young as they used to be. <laughs> um, and I have to say, like, balance looks a little bit different at, at every age, right? So when they were newborns or babies, um, you, you know, I think the balance was basically impossible at that point. You were just trying to keep your head above water. Um, but now they're older and, you know, one is in school and the other one is, um, is going to be soon to be in school. And so, you know, I get breaks that way, but I think one of the key things is having a good partner, right? I think uh, my husband and I both have demanding jobs and we both respect each other, you know, that we, we need both incomes in order to, to live. And so, because we both, neither one of us puts, you know, like when you look at the family, no one person's job is more important than the other. And that's so key. Like you need, you need a partner if you're going to be a working mother, because I can't, I can't do what I do and then come home and do it all. So he's just as capable of packing lunches. Um, you know, we have a shared family calendar, so he knows when the teacher conferences are, what, you know, all of those things. And so just making sure that you have those systems in place. Plus, you know, we ended up, um, so I think it's different with every kid, right? With my first kid, we put him in daycare. Everything was great. I had my second kid. I put him in daycare and everything was wrong. He was not sleeping. I was not sleeping. Um, it just, it didn't work out. So I took him out of daycare. I took a little while to freelance and kind of re reconfigure what I freelance part-time while we figured out like, how are we going to make this work with two kids? And particularly one kid who's just really not doing well with daycare. Um, so we switched gears, we ended up getting a nanny and then putting my older one in like a part-time preschool at the time. And, um, then it was just like a world of difference <laughs> that knowing that both my kids were happy getting and healthy. Help. Yeah. Not, not being shy of, you know, asking for help. I think that is the key here that, you know, you went in with a, getting a nanny to actually set things up, but then how does that actually has changed you as a professional? Uh, do you think that, you know, you are you look at things differently now than before? 
Sure. I think my time, I look at very differently. And I also look at managing differently as well. Um, but my time, I have to be a whole heck of a lot more efficient and it's not just efficient, like in my, in what I'm doing at work, but like when it comes to making personal connections outside work, cause I can't make every happy hour anymore. Right. Like that's no longer <laughs> a thing. Um, I wish it was, and I know it will be again. Um, but so like, making sure I connect with people is really important because, you know, I, again, like I don't get to go to every happy hour because sometimes I, I want to be home for, for a soccer game or, you know, to get the kids off the bus, whatever that thing is. Um, so that's definitely a shift. And then I think overall, I mean, I think parenthood makes you more empathetic in general. <laughs> Better designer. And, Empathy is always the key for a good designer. And I yeah. think if, if you're, you know, exposed to a whole new set of applications and issues and problems that you now find because you never actually thought about those issues before. So they must change your perspective towards uh, how the solutions are made and designed for. Yeah, I think definitely, I'm trying to think of the best way to answer it's like, I think, you know, dealing with users is different than dealing with like your team, right? And so when you're looking at like everyone on my team knows who my kids are because they barge into my office all the time. It is just, it is what it is. Um, and that's okay. I think that's one thing from the pandemic that like has, uh, at, you know, at, at one point everybody had kids at home. So, um, <laughs> so you got really used to it, but I am really good about time blocking now. I think that's one thing that parenthood has taught me is like, I, I set, I actually put um, an invite in my calendar for blocking off time to review my team's work. I have block off time for me to work on my particular, you know, like if I'm actually designing something rather than managing it and just being really good about understanding how much time I have in a day. And then also tracking what kind of mood I'm in. So like, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, I want to burn through this email list and I just want to get through all my emails. And I understand that like early in the morning, I'm better at administrative tasks and later in the day, I'm better at creative tasks and just kind of understanding that and then making sure that my, my work follows suit. My work day. Right. So um, early in your career, I mean, there is a big difference between what you do now and how it started. So when you uh, were an intern at Tank Design, I mean, how different the life was then? Uh, what were you doing at that time and, uh, you know, why it was a good idea? And I think, does it actually made any difference to your career right now? Um, that's a great question. So that was the only time I worked in advertising. Uh -huh. um and and branding and um I liked it but I didn't think I was great at it I worked under an, a fantastic creative director who just was so unbelievably good at her job and I remember being like she she is much more passionate about this than I am and I think what the nice thing about internships is it gives you a really risk-free way to see it, to try something on, right? And I think I pretty pretty quickly um, knew that I wasn't necessarily made for agency life. Um, I liked being in-house and I didn't really want to work in advertising. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that, 
I think if anything, those are the best lessons I got from from that that particular internship. It's but a also different the life. Other... Anybody anybody in the career uh, in the designing will tell you that being working for an agency is completely different from working for a, you know the, the, any company that you're directly employed by. Uh, the challenge, totally. the and pressure, the 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 lifestyle is completely different. I mean, the work life balance goes for a toss. But for the start of the career, I think you get got the opportunity to learn from that what goes on uh, at the other side of the wall. Otherwise, entire career people left wondering, what if I was working for an agency? Could have been things could have been different because they are sometimes treated as rock stars. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's funny. And now that I um. I've been on the other side, right? I've been on the client side. And first of all, no one, no one is more of a rock star than another person because they work in-house or agency side. Um, and I've even learned that, you know, after meeting people who work in for like some of the big, big tech companies versus smaller tech companies, like it doesn't make you better or worse um, of a designer just because you've worked at Google and I haven't. Um, but because at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're all designers and we're all we're all working to get better. But so in the end, internships give you the clear idea that, you know, what you actually wanted to do, what was uh, for you. And rather than just jumping in a job full time and just hating it and just switching the entire career altogether. So I think that right. is the uh, you know takeaway from here. So any new uh, person who is uh, starting out in the career of designing, any advice that would you like to give to them? Sure. Yeah. So I think one, a couple of things. One is if you're coming from a certificate program, um, I think it depends on where you're coming from, from that certificate program, right? Like if you're, if you were a copywriter or a graphic designer and you took a boot camp and now you're coming in, like you're probably going to have a, a set of tools that you were able to bring from your previous experience that will help you. Um, versus if you're coming from a drastically different field and trying to come into UX design, right? So, or, you know, and, and so if you're coming from outside of tech, you take a bootcamp class and then you're expecting to be able to just be dropped into a UX role after 16 weeks and be able to get going. I think that's, um, that bootcamp did a disservice to you, right? Like, I think that there, there's a need for a bootcamp for some people. And then there is just like, you, you know, either like get a job where there is a UX department and you can shadow and see what's going on and, and learn on the job as well. But the thought that you can just do a bootcamp class and then like get a senior designer role is is pure advertising. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, there's always going to be difference because you know every time you have a project, uh, the process is going to be different. The people are going to be different. The challenge is going to be different. And people don't understand that you know starting out in a career is just like that. I have done the course now the job. I think one thing which I really uh, differentiate in, in two parameters, one goes on the side that's where people are career designers who started off in the design education and that was decided that this is the career that they are going to follow. And mm -hmm. um, at the second end of the spectrum, we get people who are not career designers, but they come from fields like psychology to UX. And that mm -hmm. is big role uh, of them becoming really successful because they cover the part about the empathy, the, the, the human mind. And so that understanding actually comes from their education and among other things. But I think being a career designer, if you have chosen the path very early in your life, you get even better 
options and versatility to be, uh, you know, to explore that you can try out, say, if you like motion designer, UX designer, graphic designer, interaction design, which actually, uh, you know, works in the favor of, uh, of the entire story. You get better connections because you have, um, you know, already a few friends or colleagues will be, you know, going into uh, the careers ahead. And, you know, that actually works, you know, in a very positive manner. But I, I get the point that you said that, you know, be realistic about it because there is no magic bullet to just doing the course and you know just getting the job uh, no and i think yeah i was sorry and so the, one of the other things is like you come out of those boot camp classes and your portfolio is what the boot camp class set up okay. and you need to figure out a way to differentiate yourself from just that boot camp portfolio so like doing some other passion projects or like going back and visiting a project that you did early on and saying this is how i would redo it um, things like that. I think that's where, you know, that's, those are the things I look for when I'm reviewing resumes. Cause it's hard, it's hard to stand out when, you know, Sarah okay. gives you the same exact portfolio template as 10,000 other people. Um, yeah. I think this one thing which we find uh, quite common when we actually interview at our company is that we get to see a lot of uh, food delivery apps and, mm -hmm. and pet walking. And dating yeah. <laughs> no but the, they don't talk about what happens behind the scene what the admin is going to look like how the restaurant person will see the order when it arrives what is mm -hmm. the ui for the delivery guy that when they are told that uh, will you pick order from here and deliver there and they say confirm and there is no management system how the restaurant added those uh, menu items and the delivery mm -hmm. times and all that information and how the, uh, the the system in the back end as in like so if you say Uber Eats so they must have somebody who is calculating that which restaurant ordered how many uh, you know right or for the restaurant owners to understand you know what's getting ordered the most and what's not and maybe what's you know what's taking the longest time or what's getting the most complaints afterwards and things True. like that so there's so many other yeah there is no like, uh, conflict resolution that is built into the place and all you get is like select the food type select the food pay order and that's like the only layer that we actually get to see every time we are actually exploring and that's when you start asking question and you know that whether or not this person will be you know greater fit and if they're coming from the same institute they all have the similar application with different colors yep yep i think one of the things that so um we started doing, I am not a fan of design tests. So I think like the take home design test needs to be like buried and a headstone and apologize for, um, because I don't think that's fair to do to, to no. people who are applying. Um, but I do like to take part of our interview process and do a digital, digital or in-person, depending on how we're interviewing them, whiteboarding process. So I give them a problem. Um, that is not something that we do at Tamer, but something adjacent and then ask them, you know, basically, I just want to see your process. I want to see a wireframe at the end. Just, it doesn't need to be pretty. I just want to understand, like you understand the problem statement. You understand, I want to see your process of how you get to a solution. And then we role play in the, in the whiteboard exercise. So we, you can address us as either a subject matter expert or a member of the product team and you can ask questions and kind of go through and that's been the best that that process has helped me and and potential employees um you know 
figure out how we work together, if it's something you're interested in, and for me to see your design process. Because I think it's hard, you know, to review a portfolio and get a full picture of how that person got to that solution. I think that's great insight. I mean, considering that you are a design leader, you have scaled the design ops team. And I think that is one of the bigger hurdles that we actually face that how to find the right talent and right fit to your organization. And having a whiteboarding exercise would give you the idea of the energy of the person that you are actually talking to. They can actually mm-hmm. just go all out and you know do something ridiculous. And that's when you realize whether the sink is there, if there is a little bit of fine tuning can help you in you know getting them to the track. Or you, you realize that just not happening. <laughs> right. And I think that's one of the things that for me, and especially in enterprise, one of the things that I need to understand for a, a designer of any level is how quickly can they understand the subject matter that we're designing for? And I like I fully expect to have to explain things a couple times over. And for that, you know, I always say after like when someone's been once someone started, I always say like after two or three months, like go back and reread some of the onboarding materials because so much more of it will click. Um, But I want to understand that person has a thirst for understanding subject matter, right? Like if they don't have that, if they're not excited to like learn about data science, then that's going to be a problem (laughs) because they're going to be designing for data scientists. I'm not saying that they need to learn SQL and that they, you know, need to have um, you know trained trained a, an, a model or anything like that but I just want to understand that they're they're interested in it right and that they want to that they have that thirst for learning true I think it's a great advice I mean for uh, any senior design leader as well sending everybody back to the onboarding documentation I think I'm definitely going to steal that and we'll try it out because uh, See, these are the things that we want to explore out of the conversation within, within the design community. I mean, with, with all the people that we've been talking to through this podcast, we are learning more and more about that how important and critical it is for a new designer to start the career, but also to understand that how um, as your career goes up and then you become a senior designer, what are the things that you can actually do to get your team better? Because you are as good as your team in the end. That is all the... 100%. Uh, Yep. <laughs> and again, I got a good advice about that. Hire uh, the people for the organization that you're aiming to be. If you want to be the top uh, company in a particular way, uh, just don't think about that the training is going to help. Just find the right fit for the future uh, of your company and make sure that it matches the vision and the mission for the team and the organization uh, altogether. And the same thing goes for anybody who is applying or finding for a new job. Don't go for brand names. Brand names do come and go but find the energy levels which will help you grow uh, where you are right now. If you are looking at, say, there is an interview uh, that you have a big organization, you might be, say, a drop in the ocean. But if you're working for the smaller company, I mean, I think that discussion we also had, uh, I think, last week or a few days ago when we were talking. A few days ago, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that, you know, it's rather be at the uh, in a smaller firm and do what you actually want to do because it gets monotonous. It gets boring if you are not exploring out and creativity is an energy which you have to maintain uh, throughout the course of your career otherwise you can't have a midlife crisis being a creative person because it could turn out disastrous for the client and the project and the company and the organization you are not just doing accounting (laughs) 
Right. And I think, well, I think what's nice is like, there's because technology is always changing and there's always new things to learn and there's always things to like, to grow. And if you do have that like midlife crisis where you're like, you know, like, let's say I'm like, oh gosh, I just, I don't want to do X, Y, Z anymore. And I've been doing it for 15 years. Um, I don't need to like completely abandon ship, right? I can just say, you know what, actually I'd rather focus on strategy more so than, um, than designing, or I'd rather focus. And I think it's like, it's figuring out where you want to, where your interests are and shifting it that way. Um, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to throw everything (laughs) out the window, become a care farmer. Like that's, that's not, that's not what I'm going to do. But the nice thing is design, design, design is universal and can be applied to anything you do. So that's one of the things that I always say, like, there's not like having a design background will help you in anything that you need to do in life, because at the end of the day, it's problem solving and it's empathy and it's understanding, understanding what needs to get done and who needs to do it. So, you know, those are, those are things that are always going to be useful, no matter what you decide to do with your life. Thank you very much. And that quote in the end becomes the, uh, the quote that we are going to get out of this episode. And thank you very much for being so candid and sharing all that beautiful things with us. I'd like to thank you for joining at our invitation for our season two. So we recently actually reached about 1,000 views in one of the episodes from the season one. So we are going strong. Wow. People are taking interest. And yeah, so it is everywhere on YouTube to any channel that has podcast hosting from Spotify to Apple Podcast and Google Podcast and everywhere. So yeah, that will follow through. I'll make sure so. to share it out. <laughs> and I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure my HR team will as well. They love sharing. They love sharing what cool things our employees are doing. So, all right. So, thank you very much for joining us today. That that's that brings us to the end of the episode. So, ladies and gentlemen, here we had one of the remarkable designers, Jessica, and she has been on a longer journey in the career. And then I we wish her all the best and watch out for the next episode. And we have another designer who has to fill in the shoes of uh, Jessica. So I think uh, that comes to, that brings us to the closure of this episode. Thank you very much for joining in and see you guys next week.